in Christ's love, dear fellow Christians, take out that Psalm 32 so you have it in front of you, and there's space to the right if you'd like to take any notes so you remember things that we talked about. It was a long time ago, 1985, 86, when my wife and I moved. We were just married. We moved up to Mankato, Minnesota for me to study Greek and Hebrew to get ready for the ministry and then from there to go off to the seminary. And I, what I had learned to do in high school and college undergrad was to work at a cabinet shop. So trying to support us, for my part, she went and got a job too. I went to, a, I, I found a cabinet shop at a man's house and he had a, a big shop outside, right, next to his house on the edge of, of Mankato, Minnesota. And I, he had a sign up, said cabinetry. So I just pulled in and got a job there. He, he, was, he was by himself when I got the job and he was a craftsman. I'd always learned more of a factory kind of cabinets. You know, we, we did them maybe rougher down here, as he would put it. He, he was teaching me, though, that when I worked for him, to be more like a furniture guy to do cabinetry. His name was Gary. About three months, I worked for him for two years there. For about three months after I got the job, he hired another man. I was 23, 24, just married. He hired an 18-year-old who, who knew less than I did and uh, was a kid that was kind of troubled. But... He could get some things done, and he could sand. Almost anybody can learn how to sand with a, a, a vibrating sander, right? And uh, so here we are, the boss and two young men trying to help him, and that was it. So guess who you talked to at break? And you couldn't get lost in a phone back then because there were no cell phones. There wasn't even an Internet. I mean, this is back, there were dinosaurs in the backyard. It's a long time ago. And so we, we sat at break time, 15 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes at lunch, 15 minutes, we would sit and talk. Of course, I was like packed to the gills with, with uh, studying the word and wanting to witness. So this, I wouldn't say poor, but this 17, 18 year old, he had this Christian young man that's trying to study to be a pastor to witness to him every day. And it probably felt oppressive. Uh, but he was troubled. And uh, he didn't show up for work after like second week. He, second full week he was there, he didn't show up for work. And the boss said, did he say he was going anywhere? I said, no, he didn't tell me anything. It was a Monday morning. So Tuesday, got to Tuesday, and his dad called. Remember, no cell phones. You can't track people on their phone. His dad calls, and he says, Are, is, is our son showing up there at work? Asked the boss. And he said, no, he's not. He said, well, he, we got in a big fight. He's been getting into the rough crowd and doing things he shouldn't. And he left the house. It took some money that was cash around the house. And he left. And he said, we're really, really scared for him. And we're worried about him. And we, we, we don't know what to do. And he said, we're looking for him. And so he said, put that other young man on there. Maybe he knows where he is. They put me on the phone. And the, he, this man poured his heart out to me and, and uh, asked if I knew where he was. And I said, no, sir, I don't. I, I'm, I'm just working here. And. I, we talked a lot, but, but he didn't tell me a lot. And he said, well, I forgive him and I love him. If he shows up there, will you tell him that? I forgive him and I love him and I want him to come back home and we're scared for him and we want him back home. So some of you been there, right? I know your, your lives and your families. Um, I remember being scared for him, that boy, and praying. I said, God, if you would let me, I'd help find him. I, and, and I would try to help him get back to his dad. And I prayed that ardently that day, that Tuesday. Well, the, the, net, the coming like Thursday morning before work, I, you know, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, in the middle of summer, it gets light pretty early, right? Like 4.30, 5.30. 
It's getting light up there, right? Tom says, yeah, you know. (laughs) You're in bed, right? You don't know. He doesn't know. So I was big into fasting at the time and prayer, uh, ardent prayer in early morning, go be alone until the mosquitoes just about chased me out of McKinney Park once. I thought I'm going to do this indoors. But I went to this little, on the edge of North Mankato, I went to this little park that was really pretty. It had geese in it. And it was, the sun was just coming up and it was absolutely gorgeous. And, but there was nobody out. It's like five in the morning and I need to be at work at eight, you know, 20 minute drive from there. And I was going to, and I did read scripture and pray. I looked across the pond, wasn't very big. And on the park bench, there was that boy. <laughs> God, you're so big, right? So I hoofed it around there. He didn't run. I sat next to him on the bench and I said, your dad called and we missed you at work. And he said he loves you and he misses you and he wants you to come back home. Tears start rolling down his cheeks. He was angry and feeling guilty and just messed up. But I said, when we get up off this bench, promise me you'll go home and talk to your dad. And he did. And he came back to work, and the rest of the summer was kind of normal. But he got reunited with his parents. Okay, every time I read the verses from the middle of this psalm that I read to you already, I think of that story. That's why I'm sharing it as an introduction. Don't be like the horse or the mule, he says, who won't come near you unless you put a bridle in them. But... What's around it is not a horse, a, a, a bridle, because it's not about how God bridled this young man. It's about how God taught him to be a human and not a donkey. Let me tell you another, another thing. And I said, some of your families have had this. Um, I think of this psalm a lot and that story a lot when I think about how many people, countless people, including sometime, maybe more recently than you want to admit, how we've all been there. Where we have become consciously aware of how we are failing and a failure, and instead of dealing with it spiritually, we hid it. We stuffed it. We didn't deal with it. We didn't want to deal with it. And we didn't want anybody else dealing with it. And we started to harden our heart against the sensitivities of our conscience or promptings of the law written in our heart or the Holy Spirit who's reminding us of truth and righteousness. And we got stubborn. Um, This psalm is the way out. This psalm is a restoration psalm from David who went there. What did God call David when he was a boy? When he picked him to replace Saul. He said to Saul, through Samuel, he said to Saul, you're you're rejected. I'm going to find a king. What? Who is what? After my own heart. And then he picked, when he picked David, he said to Jesse, who was going to anoint the sons of, one of the sons of Jesse, don't pick that one, don't pick that one. The Lord 
looks at the heart, but the man looks at the outward appearance. So here's a guy, David, who's held up as a young boy as having a heart for God. Truth, light, honesty, love, faith, trust, all those things. He's not perfect, but he's pure compared to the other boys in the family. That's the one I picked. He's not going to be like Saul. And what did David do later in his life after all that history with Bathsheba? He entered the darkness of deceit and lust, right? He took Bathsheba. She was Uriah's wife. He fornicated with her. He made sure Uriah got killed because she'd sent word later that she was pregnant. He wanted Uriah to go down and have sex with his wife, so his own wife, so that it would cover up the fact that David had, had, had conceived that child in her. And then Uriah wouldn't do it because he was such a man of valor. And the, the weirdness of the sin of David is that when he realized he couldn't get Uriah to cover it up for him unknowingly, he sent Uriah with that, 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 that uh, uh, message on parchment to Joab, the commander, where Uriah had to go back to battle, and inside of it was the message, put Uriah at the front line and then retreat from him so he's killed. And Uriah never opened the message because he was honorable. It had a string around it with a wax on it and a seal, and he would not break the rules of the king. He carried his own contract on his own life. And David was the one that wrote it, and he let it all develop and happen. Think of that. And Uriah was killed, but Joab, having a certain kind of honor more than David as a warrior would not do that to Uriah. And it would be hard to defend anyway, tell all his men to withdraw from him. He just sent 35 men up close to the wall of the city they were attacking and let all 35 of them get killed. So Bathsheba, Sin, Uriah, and 34 other guys are in the 30s. And they're all gone. And David quickly found out the messenger came back said you're all we lost this many men and Uriah the Hittite is dead that's what Joab sent back and he quickly said send for Bathsheba and he married her quickly trying to cover up that that was his child be from fornication and then he stuffed it seems like with being king he's had almost the perfect crimes right Took care of it. But he knew it was wrong. And he had to look in the mirror and live with himself. And while someone might say, King David, you're a man after the Lord's own heart, what would he whisper to himself in his soul? No, I'm a liar. I'm not a man after the Lord's own heart. I'm not really who they think I am. I despise myself. But he wouldn't come home. He wouldn't go see the priest. He wouldn't confess it. And God sent Nathan. And Nathan called him out. And David confessed it when Nathan called him out. And David said, I have sinned against the Lord. He got it out. And Nathan said, there's going to be consequences. And they were bad, right? But he, what, the biggest thing he said to David was not the consequences. The biggest thing he said was, 
The Lord has forgiven your sin and you're not going to die because of it. And David clung to that grace and that forgiveness. And he felt for the first time in months and maybe years the power of complete forgiveness. Where he and his soul had bottomed out to confess his own sin and sin nature and knew he was completely forgiven. And it felt great. Now, David was a songwriter. And the Psalms, and the, or most of the Psalms are written by David, not all of them, but the songs were in an oral society were huge for teaching spiritual things. They still are, songs are. And so David wrote Psalm 51 after he got that purification of, of forgiveness from Nathan. But he also wrote Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is shorter. Psalm 51 is more well known. And tonight we're going to look at Psalm 32. But here's the thing. When I, what I read to you is close to the end of the psalm. What David's trying to say to us is, I've been there. I've done it. I was the kid on the park bench. And I know what it's like to run from people and run from God. And I got grace and forgiveness. And it renewed me and restored me. And it gave me joy like uh, I, I couldn't imagine before that. And he's saying, I want to teach you guys about that. That's what verse 8 is about. I'm going to show you the way. So as a pastor, I kind of just want to, because I, I know a lot of people who run. They run from God and they run from their parents and they run from me and they run from their, the police. And, and they're in prison. And I want to say, just listen to David. There's a better way. So let's start at the top. It, it's uh, verse one and two has three phrases of how blessed the life is. Now, real quickly, when you hear the word blessed, anytime in the Psalms, it's saying this is the good life. This is not just some religious word like blessed be the tie that binds. It's, it's happy, successful, prosperous. It's a special word in the original. It means if you want the good life, this is what life's supposed to be like. What, look at it. Verse one and two with me. Read it out loud. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Blessed, when he says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are not forgiven, that original word has the nuance of rebellion. Here's something that keeps us in the dark sometimes about God's grace. We think he really only forgives you. This is a weird thought, but people have it. If you didn't really intentionally do it. Right? If you just kind of... Sometimes in a, in a relationship with somebody, one person will confront the other and they go, well, I didn't intend to hurt you. As if that makes it okay. Right? Actually, though, this is David saying, I intended to do it. I wanted Bathsheba. I put Uriah to death. And that stalked me. It stalked me and haunted me that I willfully, a man after the Lord's own heart, willfully knew what God's will was, and I kicked it to the curb, and I said, I don't want the will of God. I want the will of David. And I feel so guilty about that. In fact, you read Psalm 51, you can see him talk about that, the heart. Guilt over the wickedness of a rebellious heart is more complex in the guilty heart than just over actions. 
And David's figured out that God forgave that too. He forgave the rebellion. He knew what was in man, right? Remember it said Jesus knew what was in man? He didn't have to have anybody tell him. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not, whose sins are covered. David had tried to cover his sin with his own uh, makeup sins, right? But God covered it with what? Grace and forgiveness. He covered it, right? It's covered away. It's put away. He doesn't, Caleb, uh, da, not Caleb, David doesn't have to think about it anymore. Blessed is the man who gets his sins covered up. Not repressed, but covered with grace. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them is a decision that God made like a lawyer, like a, a judge. I'm not counting it. Yes, you did it, but I'm not counting it against you. It's a, it's a declaration by someone who has more authority than you. You see, all this time when we argue about our sins with somebody, we go, well, you know, if I wouldn't have done it, if you hadn't, and it's because it's because of the way my mother was, and it's what we're blaming and denying and excusing, we're trying to get it not counted. But the only thing that really works for the human heart is for you to count it and for God to discount it, to not count it. And David says, blessed is the man who got it all off his chest. I have done it. And God said, I'm not going to count it against you. How can God do that? Well, David learned and knew that God was a forgiving God. But we know more than David. He did it because he punished his son, the son of David, in David's place, in our place. And it was punished completely, and therefore he doesn't count it against us. So we can, we can have a blessed life if we know Jesus as the one who took it away. Okay, let's read again the next two verses, three and four. Ready? Now I'm going to tell my story. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He's describing the symptoms of someone who has a lot of guilt. You feel the stress of guilt in your body and it feel it exhausts you. It makes you feel like you're, you're too tired. Not all tired and, and fatigue comes from guilt, but Guilt does produce tired and fatigue and pain in your body. And people don't often know that's a big part of why they're feeling so bad is because they're living with unresolved guilt. But David knew he was feeling bad at the past, in the past, because of his unresolved guilt. He had once felt spry and strong and free. And during those months that he tried to hide it, he felt haggard. And worn out because he was constantly mentally on alert uh, with the, the uh, constant accusations of his conscience, the Holy Spirit, the truth written in his heart. It was all bugging him. And he goes, my bones wasted away. I lost my strength. It felt like the heat of summer. You know what? In Texas, you know about the heat of summer, right? Just like, do you look, I looked at my weather today. It's going to get up to 80s this next week. And I think, oh no, then the 90s are coming after that. And then the hundreds and I hate it when I walk outside and just like <sighs> sucks the strength out of you, right? David said, that's what, that's what I felt like, right? I'm just going to say it real quick. God relentlessly pursues guilty people. God likes it 
if you're stressed over guilt rather than feeling fine that you did it as if nothing ever happened. He wants you to stress over it so you'll come back home. He wants that boy to spend three nights in his car and sit on a park bench and if he's not going to go home, right? Not to stress over it. I, I, I kind of picture it like a, a sponge in the kitchen and it's got a little dampness in it, but you want to use it to wipe up and fill it up with something else. So what do you do to the sponge? You squeeze it out into the sink, right? God squeezes out all your excuses, your blame and everything else and he relentlessly pursues you and he gets you all squeezed out and then he says, let's absorb grace. Let's, let's get grace. Fill up, fill up the sponge of your heart. So he does that. He pursues you. So, if you're bothered and harassed by something that's bugging you, it's not a bad thing. It's an alarm saying we got something to resolve, right? Okay, verse 5. Let's read it. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David had to be pushed to that. Now, you may have a story of your own that you don't tell because it's too embarrassing, where you got pushed in your guilty conscience, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and you finally fessed up to whomever you needed to, including God, to get rid of it, right? But David had to be pushed by another person. Sometimes it's more than the conscience, the law, the Holy Spirit. It's even a person has to call us out. And Nathan came and called David out. What's interesting to me, and I hope it's interesting to you, is that David doesn't mention it. He says, my bones wasted away, right? And then he says, I acknowledge my sinfulness. Well, we're not going to look for who's righteous by who confesses the fastest, right? So David's, he, is, he's, he doesn't need to defend himself that he had to be called out by Nathan. Frankly, there's stories all over the, the, the chapters before and after David of kings who killed people like Nathan that came and called him out. So his conscience, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and Nathan called him out. But finally, when Nathan called him out, instead of killing Nathan or putting him in jail, he confessed his sin. You understand what I'm trying to show you? God is so gracious and he's so relentless to redeem you and restore you. He's already forgiven you. He doesn't, he doesn't count whether you had to have a person like Don find you on the other side of the lake at a park bench or not. He just wants you home, right? So David says, I confessed it. I got it off my chest. I said to God I was wrong. But it was when Nathan had confronted him that he did it. Remember, Nathan, just to worried about himself probably, told that story about a man who took a sheep from his neighbor that only had one because he wanted David, David to call out the sin. So he said, David said, well, whoever did that took that other guy's one little lamb when he had all these lambs of his own. He should die, pay four times over. And then he goes, you are the man, right? That protected Nathan because the story got over the wall of the hardness of his heart. But David doesn't talk about all that. He just says... The simple in this song, the simple truth, I confessed it. And aha, the big aha moment is the last line, and you did what with it? 
You forgave the guilt of my sin. What is it when we're running from God that we're afraid is going to happen if we turn ourselves in? Not being forgiven and having absolute punishment, right? David got some earthly consequences, but it wasn't the death of his soul and it wasn't the end of his being. And it was, he was totally restored with God, under God's loving care as a child of God. So we fear rejection when God actually says, oh no, I'm waiting. I'm the dad waiting for you to come home. Jesus even told that parable, didn't he? About the father waiting for him to come home. Aha, David says, I was foolish when I thought he wouldn't forgive me. Verse 6, therefore, let now, now, by the way, all these, all these verses so far, David talking to God. Now, he's, he's writing it so everybody can hear it, but he's talking to God. You did this, you did this, and then you forgave my sin. Now, he's going to speak for God. Therefore, what? Let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. What does that while you may be found make you think of the time of grace in a person's life right let everyone pray to God while you're still got a beating heart you're still alive while he may be found this by the way is like David's a prison ministry chaplain or a hospital chaplain someone going to those who are on the edge of eternity Jesus on the cross with the thief next to him right the thief saying to the other thief, don't you fear God, right? You've got time. He can be found in his grace. Everyone has a time of grace. The great proclamation of the good news of grace is you have a time in your life while you're listening in the sound of my voice to come home. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of mighty waters will not reach him. Um, this is a general statement, but it could specific, you can specifically see a picture of it in the life of Jonah. Jonah was hard-hearted for a time against God's grace. And what did they do to Jonah? Bloop! Kerplunk! They threw him in the ocean because he said, the storms are here because of me. And he almost drowned. And what saved him? A big fish. And then inside the big fish, he prays, God's rescued me by sending this fish to swallow me. And I got oxygen and he talks about the grace of God. And if you have idols, then you forfeit the grace. The reason I say that is the waters, if someone's crying out to God in repentance, the waters of judgment will not drown them. It's a beautiful prayer to God. He says, therefore, come and cry out in prayer. Surely the rising of mighty waters won't reach him. You, God, are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I've learned that God loves to rescue us. Remember when Peter looked at the winds and waves and then he said, what, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached down and said, and he, he didn't dunk him three times saying, why did you look at the waves and the wind? <laughs> he reached down and whoa. That's what God does to a repentant sinner. By the way, sidebar, that's what Christian wives and husbands do to a repentant spouse or mothers and dads are supposed to do to a repentant child. It is a cursed way to parent or spouse somebody that when they say, I'm very sorry I did that. Well, you're forgiven, but boom, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. Wait a minute. What does God do? I forgive you. He jerks us up. That's what it's called, this living in grace. 
And, and, and the more we learn to live in it, the more we train each other that it's real. And, it's, and we can restore relationships in our church, in our families, in our community, if we'll learn to forgive like that, like God does. Songs of deliverance in the family of believers all the time. Songs of deliverance. Okay. Remember I said he, he was talking to God first. Then he says, therefore... It's this great proclamation. Now he, he talks to your individual soul. And he's like a coach, right? He's like a, a friend that comes into the park bench, right? Let me talk to you. I, verse 8, let's read it. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Let's stop right there. What's this thing about loving eye on you? Remember when Peter denied knowing Jesus? Go backwards. That night, on Thursday night, Jesus said, Peter, Peter, I'll go to death with you. And what did Jesus say? Uh, tonight, you're going to deny that you know me three times. But I, the Satan has prayed for you that he could sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. So when you return to me, strengthen your brothers. What was that all about? Jesus was showing Peter grace before he sinned for the sin he was going to forgive him about. So when Peter went out wet bitterly after he denied knowing Jesus, what does it say Jesus did to him as he, they, they, they locked eyes? Jesus looked at him. And then Peter went out and wept bitterly. Loving eyes on you. When you feel guilty... What do you do with your eyes? You look down, right? When you've got shame, even if it's not, you're not supposed to have it, right, over a sin. You just feel shame. You look down. You look away. You don't look up, right? But God's loving eye is on you. David's loving eye is on you as a coach. When you know somebody loves you, even if you're feeling guilty, you can sense that the eye is not a judgment eye, but it's a what? A coaching eye. It's a loving eye. Jesus looked at Peter. It wasn't to say, go to hell, Peter. It was to say, Peter, this is it. And when you have returned to me, you strengthen your brothers. You denied knowing me three times, but this is the gospel that's happening. See what I mean? So I'll give you, my loving eye is on you as a coach. I'm watching you. I see you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. The picture is of being a willing sinner, being a sinner who's willing to come home, who's not hard. We're all sinners, but being willing to believe the gospel enough to come home quickly, to say you're sorry as fast as you can, as soon as it, you're aware of it, right? Not to make excuses, not to blame, not to get all hiding and all that guilt, because you know that the gospel's waiting for you, right? To get back to business of living in grace as soon as you can. Don't be like a horse or mule that you've got to spend a long time training. And then you still, after all that training, for some of them who they're just not getting it, you have to put a metal bit in their mouth so that when you tweak it, right, they, it, it bothers them so much they have to move, right? Picture riding it, right? 
a, a, a horse or a mule that doesn't need that because they've been trained to trust you and just go a little bit to the left, right? You can just barely tap that rein against their neck, right? You can even just shift your body weight. They don't have to have anything in their mouth. They just have a, a, a bridle around them. But then if they're not that way, they have to have a bit. And you have to always have a little edge of force because it's very uncomfortable. Don't be like that with God. He doesn't want that. He wants that relationship as he has with people. He's always wanted a relationship with people better than he has with the animals. He's never wanted people to be like animals. We're made in his image. It's why he loved Abel so much and not Cain. And you can see Cain acting like a beast. And it's why he loved Abraham so much, the friend of God. It's why he loved David so much. That's why he was so hurt when David did all that. Because he wants, David says, don't be like an animal. He wants us to be like people. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Unfailing love. Personified in the Savior himself in the way he treated the 12 apostles. They kept failing, and he kept going back to get them. Unfailing. When did it fail? Rack your brain and look for it. It didn't, right? There was Peter, even after Jesus has ascended into heaven, still failing up there in Antioch, treating the Gentiles differently than he should have. And God sent Paul, like Nathan, called him to repentance, always bringing him back. Never failed. God still loved him not including all the stories where Jesus walked to find them. But the wicked have many woes. Some of the woes are wasting away in guilt, fractured relationships, losing years of their life because they won't go home and talk to their parents or their brother or their sister, right? Wiping out 20, 30 years of relationship and friendships they could have had, right? with people loneliness of of judgment and guilt and anger and bitterness woes of the wicked but if you have unfailing love they surround you and you live in this grace bubble that actually is like that Olaf in Frozen it's just this loving comfortable in your own skin surrounded by the unfailing love of God. That's what it's like, David says. And then, like many Psalms, he's, he, he, may, he says, if this is what you've done, you've come home, you're not like the horse or mule, now you, I can tell you and you'll do it. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. What is a righteous person? Oh, they're the goody two-shoes. Oh, no, they're not. A righteous person is someone who trust God's grace to cover their sin. And so they're not trying to earn anybody's love. They just love them because they, they're pure. They're not trying to manipulate anybody with love because they love purely. They're, they're righteous in their motives and their actions because they have been made free of guilt and the law. Sing all you of what? Upright in heart. Standing up, looking people in the eye, stepping out, 
knowing that even if you have problems that come up, somehow God is working for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. You're not beaten down mentally, emotionally by the lies of the devil. Do you see how Psalm 32 is David saying, I've been there on that park bench and I don't want you to sit there very long. I want you to get home and be with the Lord. In closing, that's the, the, the gospel lesson that our pastor, for guest pastor, preached this morning that I'm not. It's printed for you. It's in John 4. Uh, Jesus meeting the woman at the well. Great personification of Psalm 32. She had been stubborn for a really long time. Think of the homes that got wrecked by a woman who married five different men. Think of the family that was disturbed that some man, had, that their, their son had shacked up with her and now she wouldn't give him a commitment. Think of the guilt and the darkness that she had and think of why she came out at noon instead of in the morning when it was cooler. She's staying away from people, right, because of guilt. And think of how Jesus made a special trip off the beaten path to go pursue her and find her and call her out like Nathan did David and tell her, I'm your Savior. She ran into town. She said, I found the Savior. She, they all came back. He taught them for two days. And they said, we believe that he's the Savior of the world just like you do. This woman who was hiding from people said, come and see the man that showed me everything I ever did. And yet she didn't need to worry about anything she ever did because it was all covered by grace. They could talk about her and she'd say, it's forgiven. And she wasn't meaning that uncaringly. She meant it freely. She could walk upright and she could praise God in her life no matter what her track record was. Do you want that? Yeah. Actually, you have it. It's yours. You've been living in it. Maybe not perfectly, but from now on, I hope it's better for you. Amen.